All right, sorry I'm late getting up here. Guys, trying to get a mask off with this microphone and these glasses is like trying to, like, you know, unwire like a bomb or something. It's like you have to do it in the right order, it just gets caught up and it's not good. Um, guys, we are in an exciting chapter of the Bible today. Genesis 2, okay? So go there in your Bible, if you would. And I'm just going to start by reading just the, the beginning section of this. And, and then we're going to jump in. This is the story of creation. And it's kind of zooming in. It's kind of, we have this big kind of cosmic view of like days and God's like speaking things into existence. But then you're going to zoom in. It's just going to talk about the Garden of Eden. Okay? So that's where we're going to be today is the Garden of Eden. But I want to read the beginning of the chapter 2. This is what it says. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all of his work that he had done in creation. Now these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, okay? So some of us, real quick, one of the things that I often wonder is where, why are chapters where they are? Do you ever notice that? And this is kind of interesting because you have like day one, day two, and then it just ends. And then in chapter two, it starts with day seven, right? And you're like, why aren't those together? Well, sometimes the chapters are just put in a weird spot because that wasn't like the original authors. Like we did that kind of later as the church just to, you know, so you wouldn't say, you know, you could tell where to flip in your Bible to. But the reason here that they actually put chapter two where it is and all of a sudden day seven is set apart is because day seven is different. Did you guys notice how day seven is kind of different than the rest of the days? It has like a different pattern to it. So day one, how does it end? Well, there's morning and there's, there's evening and morning the first day and then evening and morning the second day. And so every kind of day has that, but day seven doesn't have that. And basically what it's supposed to do is it's basically causing us to kind of ask this question. And all the rest of the day is God speaks, God does stuff, and creation kind of corresponds. And day seven, God rests. He is enjoying his creation. He's kind of entering into this mode of existence within his creation. And the question now is, as his image bearers specifically, the pinnacle of creation, are we going to kind of enter into this rest as well? The reason that kind of the day doesn't end is because the actual that day, in order for this part of creation to be finished, finalized, humanity actually has a role to play in the story. And so we're going to see that actually as the story zooms in. And so if you take notes, uh, these aren't three points. These are just the three movements of the talk. It's the garden, the tree, and the test. So we're going to start in the garden, okay? Look at, he says in, in chapter 2, verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land... And no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land. And also there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land that was watering the whole face of the ground. And then the Lord God formed a man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. And, and we'll skip the next few verses, but basically what it's, it starts to talk about is it's saying there, there's, there's water here, but there's also gems and kind of minerals, and there's, there's, there's metals. There's all these kinds of pictures of like abundance and prosperity and life, things that are really good. And then in verse 15, it says this, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. 
Okay, so just real quick, the very first thing he's giving to them, he's like, okay, I'm putting you in the garden, and I'm going to do this thing. The very first thing he says to them is, hey, I'm commanding you this. You can eat from everything, any tree you want. Go for it. It's all yours, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And he tells them why. He says, for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then verse 18, then the Lord God said, well, it's not good that man should be alone because he's kind of giving these things just to Adam. And so he says, I will make a helper fit for him. Now we're going to get into kind of all of this later. We're actually going to spend two whole weeks on kind of marriage and, and, and maleness and femaleness and how does this work together. But basically God takes Adam. He's like, it's not good for you to be alone. Puts him to sleep, takes his rib. And then kind of the same kind of intimacy that he forms Adam, he forms Eve. He brings Adam and Eve together. Adam breaks out in poetry and, you know, it's not that great of a poem, but it's the very first one. And he's trying. He's a man. But he breaks out in poetry. You know, oh, this is a bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Um, and we're going to talk more about that later. But this last line, okay? Go to the very end. The very end of chapter 2. It's kind of the summation of just man and woman, humanity, in this garden. It says, the man and his wife, they were both naked and they were not ashamed. So that's where humanity starts. We're told that's the home. That's like where kind of everything originates from is this garden. And we're told that God takes Adam and forms him out of the dust of the ground. But then he kind of breathes into him and kind of like puts into him the breath of life from God to Adam. But then he plants a garden in Eden. So Eden sits kind of this region. And in a specific area, we're told in the east, he kind of just literally gets his hands dirty and he plants a garden. And he starts to like bring about like life and, and specific life in Eden, and Eden in Hebrew just means pleasant paradise. That's the idea of it. So it's just like in paradise, God makes a garden, and God takes Adam, puts him in the garden, and then God does this next thing. He makes a bunch of trees to spring up, okay? And these trees are like great trees. They're, they're good looking, and they're good for food. And now we normally think of like fruit trees, and that's probably true, but it literally just says trees that are good for food, okay? So when I read this, I think bacon trees, okay? Good food. Garden of Eden, not like our world. So I really do. Like when I read this, I imagine there is bacon. They're just like, thank you, God. And they take it and they eat it, okay? This is the Garden of Eden. Purpose built for humanity by God. It's meant to be this picture of lush lavishness, life, goodness. But we aren't just meant to picture this place because of what is described. Probably the bigger thing we're actually supposed to feel when we read these verses is we're meant to understand the Garden of Eden in terms of what isn't described. Sin and death. These aren't part of the story yet. This is a world without sin and without death. This is a world where we haven't been cut off from the tree of life and the presence of God. And even though the descriptions of this place, they're kind of like earthy and simple, right? Like some of us, when we read that, we're like, okay, like they were gardeners. Like, okay, I don't know. It's kind of cool. Like really, it's, it's earthy and it's simple, the descriptions are, right? But this garden is nothing like our world. It's nothing like our world. And so if you picture in your head, like, okay, the Garden of Eden, it's like this, I don't know, like grove of apple trees and there's a couple like naked people running around and you're like, that's my picture of Garden of Eden. That's a horrible picture of the Garden of Eden, okay? Like that's not what the story is trying to get us to feel. It's not what it's trying to get us to, to think about and imagine and believe in. C.S. Lewis, he has this book called Paralandra, and it's one of my favorite books from C.S. Lewis. It's kind of a deep dive, so if you're new into Lewis, don't read that one first, but it's awesome. And he basically is like retelling the story of Eden. 
And what he's trying to do is help people kind of understand what was this world like? And so he basically takes a guy named Ransom, who's just like a normal, sinful dude from planet Earth, and he basically puts him into this kind of, this world, this story. And it involves space travel, which is really cool. Okay, anyway. But he ends up in this version of the Garden of Eden. And he's just going to talk to us in this section about the fruit. Not the tree of life, just literally like a piece of fruit from the Garden of Eden, right? So just listen to his imagination, help us to try to picture what this world is like. So now he had come to the part of the wood where these great globes of yellow fruit hung from the trees, okay? So yeah, garden, fruit trees. Now he had meant to extract the smallest, just kind of experimental sip from the, from the, the, the bit of this. I just want to see what this tastes like. But the very first taste put his caution all to flight. And it was, of course, a taste, just as his hunger and thirst really had been, hunger and thirst. But then it was so different from every other taste that it seemed mere formalism to call it a taste at all. It was like the discovery of a totally new genus of pleasures, something unheard of among men, out of all reckoning, beyond all covenant, for a single drink of this on earth would be the very thing that all wars were fought over and of which nations would be betrayed. So Lewis is saying, hey, and I know you think that this is trees, fruit trees, but you have to understand because sin and death are not part of this world, every single piece of it, even its physicality, is unbelievably different than the world you live in today. And he's saying just a piece of fruit, just one of the trees, just a piece of fruit. He's saying if that existed in our world today, in its purity and splendor, without sin and death affecting it, he's saying just to take a single bite of that fruit would be the very thing that all wars on planet Earth would be fought over. This part of the story, even though it feels simple and physical, is nothing similar to the world we live in today. Even the things that feel knowable and normal, the Bible tells us that those parts of Eden that even kind of come through in the story, right? They tell us that they have been overwhelmed in tragedy and curse. And yes, while we have fruit trees in our world and we eat of them and we taste of them, the Bible would tell us that everything we eat and everything we taste and all that we see and even all the things that feel and appear very good to us in our world, the Bible tells us that we experience them like someone who is walking through the wreckage of a once great and marvelous city. And while we can see beautiful and good things, we are finding them as like shards of glass and burnt pieces of twisted metal left behind from the incendiary bombs that our sin brought into God's good world. And so in the very beginning, we don't just have this chapter, we have the whole story of the Bible. And what this chapter of the story is trying to get us to do is that all the longings that we feel for home, all of the longings that we feel for a space that can feel full, complete and right, the Bible means for us to populate the Garden of Eden with all of these emotions we have, all of these longings we have. And saying this was our home, this was the space we were meant for, a place with no hospitals, no death, but instead at the center is a tree of life, where we were naked and we were exposed, but we had no shame. And this was the home of humanity, and it really is, it's the home that we miss each and every day. But one of the things that's so interesting about this place, the Garden of Eden, is that it isn't a static thing. It's not static and kind of finished and complete and just like, okay, there it is. There's the Garden of Eden. No, it's actually a place filled with potentials. 
And that was the point of it. The Garden of Eden, I think a lot of us think of it that way. We think of it as like some static perfection. Like we're eating fruit, we're hanging out with animals, we're lying down in like lush mosses, right? Enjoying ourselves. And we think of Eden as like, this is creation at its pinnacle. Nowhere for it to go. It's like vacation at the beach forever, where as soon as your drink runs out, like, oh, there it is. It's filled again, right? Just this cycle of enjoying things endlessly, but it's a contained thing. That's not what the story is saying. God says that creation was finished, right? It says that at the end of day six, and that it was very good, but we're actually meant to see Eden as like the starting point of God's vision for where creation would go, not the end goal. We weren't just put into a garden so that we could take care of it, but human beings were like planted in a garden so that they could actually grow into something, so they could become something. So from the very beginning of the story, it's not saying, hey, this is how things were meant to be. It was saying, no, this was a place where human beings like you could have actually grown into the thing God intended for them to be all along. And the reason our world is different is because we no longer have access to be able to grow into what God created us to be. It's a place of growth. That's why it's a garden, right? It's not just a garden because it's like God decided to do a garden. It's also symbolic, right? What happens in gardens? Things grow. Humanity was supposed to grow. And we see this in various ways. We're supposed to work and keep the gardens. We're supposed to be stewards of creation. And so I'm not gonna spend much time on this, but just that means something for us as Christians and how we think of our planet and our world. We're supposed to be stewards of this place, not just like, all right, we're just going to throw trash on it. No, we're supposed to take care of this. We're actually given that role. And so that actually means something with how Christians are supposed to think about environmentalism in action. I'm not saying what that means. I'm just saying it means we should think about it. Here it is. We're stewards of creation. But the second thing, we're also told that we're supposed to have dominion over the rest of creation. I guess it's going to kind of come in a story that we're supposed to have authority over all creation and all other creatures. And this will actually come into play in the next chapter we read. But also, not just that, we're supposed to be fruitful and multiply, and we're told to actually fill the earth. So it isn't even static in geography or kind of static in place, but actually we're given this mandate, this call from God to actually expand the glory of God across the whole earth. Take this beautiful picture in the garden and start to push out the edges. Literally, that's human, the spirit you feel in you to like go and see things and experience things and go on adventures, that is something God put in you because you were actually designed to not stay in one place for the rest of your life and do one cyclical thing, but actually it was to grow and become and move out into the world because as you moved into the world, the image of God that you are would take your glory with him. And so when you see in the prophets where they say, there's this coming day where the glory of God is gonna cover the earth as the water covers the seas, the reason they say that is because they go, that was the point all along. There's the expansive filling role that the image bearers of God were supposed to take as they adventured out into the ends of the earth, carrying with them the name of God and his glory wherever they went. But we also see this kind of this growth, this kind of trajectory, because at the very center of the garden and the very center of the story, there is a tree that Adam and Eve were invited to eat from. And it's the tree of life. Okay, so you have the garden, the center of the garden, you have this tree called the tree of life. Now look what this says in, in verse nine. Now out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So you have this picture, there's kind of trees all over the place, you know, very good. Any one of these, we would literally fight and kill each other to have a piece of that fruit, right? But in the center of the garden, there's the tree of life. 
and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so the picture he's painting is he's saying everything is great. Everything is filled with abundance and life, but in the midst, or your translation might say in the middle, like that's actually the Hebrews use there, is like the very center of everything, there's the tree of life. But it's interesting because it says, oh, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the reason it's actually hard to translate, is it the midst or is it the middle, is because the tree of life is depicted as the center, but then in the same kind of way or like right next to it, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is kind of also right there. Or maybe another way to think of it would be like this. In the center of the garden, like the focus and the pinnacle and the purpose of it all is that there is this tree of life that humanity is invited to eat from, but then on our journey and path towards the tree of life, right on the way, there's another tree that we're not supposed to eat from. And this is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or another way to think of it is in order to get to the tree of life and eat it, we actually have to pass by and reject this other tree in order to eat from the tree of life. Now, this story's about trees, okay? Now, I don't know, is anyone, does anyone study trees? <laughs> Nicholas is like, no, he doesn't. He just read a book. But anyway, okay. Trees are really interesting. Okay, actually in the Bible, uh, it talked about God more than anything, humanity, second, of living creatures, third, living things, trees. They're all over the Bible, like literally everywhere over the Bible. And even as I was kind of preparing for this and like trying to get my, my head around, like, okay, why does the Bible start in a garden with trees and then there's two trees? But then you go to the very end of the Bible and it, it ends with trees and it ends with the same tree of life you see here. It's on the very last page of the Bible as well. And it isn't just there, it's in the first page of the Psalms. Actually, every single character in the Bible, like main characters in the Bible, you think, okay, well, Abraham, um, Moses, Noah, they all have trees connected to them, like very specifically. And actually, most of the important moments in the story, they take place under or next to or on a tree. So like, just, if we're just talking about the literature of the Bible, Trees are one of the ways, actually one of the main ways that the authors of the Bible are trying to tie everything together. And so when you see a tree in the Bible, you're supposed to go, hmm, what does this have to do with these trees who start the story? Because the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil are the two trees in the beginning that all trees kind of talk about or point back to in some way. And specifically, the tree of life that sits at the center of the beginning of our story, how do we view it? How do we think about it? Well, most theologians will kind of explain it like this. And this is how Augustine would say. He'd say the tree of life was like this spiritual, physical, and even edible sacrament to the eternal life of God. And actually, as the story of the Bible continues, you eventually get to the point where they're kicked out of Eden and they have a tabernacle and a temple. And we know that actually these two things, the reason God's really specific with like the law, or like how you build this thing, right? Have you ever read that part? And he's like, yeah, you're gonna have these curtains and you're gonna have pomegranates on them and you're gonna have all these vestments. And you're gonna have, have these jewels there. And you're like, why are you being so specific? Well, because it's supposed to be a model after Eden. And what is at the center of the temple? The Holy of Holies. What is at the center of the garden? The tree of life. There's this connection being made where it's supposed to be like, okay, the tree of life has something to do with kind of the white, hot, like presence of God, a, a kind of a presentation of his holiness. But actually even in Exodus where Moses, right, the burning bush, you have this like tiny tree that's like on fire and you're like, what's going on there? And then you get close to it and he goes, Moses, don't come any closer. You're standing on holy ground. My presence is here in this tree. What we're supposed to do is we're supposed to kind of feed these things back into this story and go, okay, wait a minute, okay. This tree is at the center of the garden 
is like a symbolic place in creation where the white hot center of the presence of God radiated out from, okay? But because it's a tree, because it had fruit, that human beings were invited to eat, the tree of life becomes the symbol of God's invitation for humanity to be joined to his eternal life, to consume his life, to take his eternal life into themselves, and in doing so would actually be fulfilling the vision that God had for humanity, right? The reason God takes Adam and puts him in the garden is because in the garden is the tree of life. It's not just because it's a great place to plant some trees. To eat from the tree of life would be to fulfill the vision that God has always had for humanity. Not just that we would reflect his glory out into the world, and not just that we would actually be even the pinnacle of his creation that knows that God delights in us, but that in some mysterious and profound way, those who have had the breath of life breathed into them by God would then turn around and of their own volition and free choice take and eat and consume the eternal life of God and by doing so would be joined to him in love and would fulfill the goal of all creation. The image bearers of God would not just sit on their individual thrones as kings and queens of the world, but they would actually respond to his free love and choosing of us by freely choosing to love him. And in doing so, the whole rest of the Bible speaks about this. The whole Bible's whispering about this in metaphor and in like concrete just facts of saying this is what's gonna happen. That in doing so, they would become intertwined and joined to his eternal life, that they would become something, grow into something that we cannot yet know or even begin to describe. This is the purpose, right? It's at the center of the garden because it's the center of the story. You were not made to just sit in a good world <laughs> where things don't go wrong and you get the job you want and you stay faithfully married and you experience love and the wine doesn't run out, right? You weren't just made to sit in a good world, but you were actually made from the very beginning to be in a good world, but then to expand it and to grow it and to make it better. And you were not merely made to take and eat of the good world that God created, but you were actually designed in the image of God so that you would be the one part of creation strong enough that you would actually be able to take and eat the God who created the world. That actually his divine substance, you'd actually be able to take that into you and become something different and new. And you'd be transformed. This is literally what Paul says happens to us in Christ. He literally calls it a metamorphosis. <laughs> He's like, you become something fundamentally different and changed. And he doesn't just say this happens to you once. He says that actually the entire goal of creation is that as we see him and know him more and more and more, we actually become changed from one degree of glory to another, to another, to another. And this is really important. It's really important. And, and for me, I'm kind of, I'm a, I'm a thinker, I'm a philosopher. I care about questions like this, so maybe you don't. But let me just bring you into like what goes into my mind when I think of heaven, okay? Heaven. Let's just, one thing about heaven, what happens? No one dies, okay? You don't die, you live forever. If you're a philosopher, that's terrifying. 
Because every kind of story in, the, in all the other stories of anyone living forever, what is it? Is it a blessing? No, it is a curse. <laughs> like to live forever is horrible. And so we're like, well, wait a minute. At the end of this book, we live forever. Why is eternal life good? <laughs> Why? It's a legitimate question. And actually, a lot of my atheist friends ask it. Well, the reason is because when the thing you are growing towards is finite, or the thing you're growing in is finite, to live forever is to experience an infinite regression of growth, right? It's like that thing, it's the thing, it's like, okay, you can, you know, every step you get closer to the wall, you take half a step less, right? So it's like, you go here, and the next step you go a little less, and you go a little less. And by the time you get there, like your steps are like, you are taking steps forward, you are moving closer to that, but because it's finite, it's an infinite regression, every step is more frustrating and less valuable than the last. That's not heaven. Heaven is an infinite progression. What are we eating from? We are eating from the tree of eternal life. The person, the being, the one we are running after is infinite. He has no end. He is not material and concrete like this world where you can get as close as you want to this table. He holds the universe in the palm of his hands. And that's just a metaphor because he doesn't have hands. We're talking about the God of the universe. And the reason heaven is good and valuable and beautiful is because when you take a step towards God and you know something of him, the very next thing it empowers you to do because you've taken from his eternal life is to take a bigger step, to go faster and further. And so the next step you take in heaven is faster and you go further. And the next one you take is faster and further. And so you're not just sitting in this kind of ideal you know, life on a beach where your drink gets refilled, but actually you were created to journey further into the forever cosmic heart of God. We have no idea what that's like. We can't picture that. Like all of our poets tell us something that kind of hints at something like that. But we've had almost no experience of anything like that at all. But to eat from the tree of life, that is what it is to do. It is to become and grow into something that is so terribly amazing that if we were to see now what it would be like for us to actually be that kind of person in the future, we would say, I cannot recognize anything about that person. That person is not me. No, that person would be you. It would just be who God had designed you to be. But you live cut off from the garden and we've lost the tree of life. Because the garden, within the garden, was a test. It was a test. And a lot of people, when they think of these chapters in Genesis, they seem really strange, right? You've got a whole bunch of trees, <laughs> kind of freedom to eat from any of them, and you have this kind of picture of a garden where there's no rules, really nothing that's off limits, except one single thing, don't eat from the one tree. And it feels kind of pointless and abstract, right? And there's a sense in which this way of viewing it is true. Adam and Eve, our first parents, they did the one single thing God told them not to do, and they destroyed the world. <laughs> that's true. Like that is just, that is, that is what happens in the story. But I think it's a really kind of superficial, surfacey way to understand it. And I think it leads to a lot of confusion and frustration of like, well, wh why couldn't you just, just eat? You have so many trees. Like, why'd you need to eat that one? Like, come on. Like, yet all of them. Like, why? It's frustrating. There's a sense in which that's true, but I want us to think about it in a different way. 
because there's another sense in which Adam and Eve were invited by God to partake of the eternal life of himself. They were invited to become something greater and more glorious than we can comprehend and even that they could comprehend. They were invited to obey the word of God, to trust him, to accept him as father and Lord and to join themselves to him in faith, believing that his word really was the path to life and in doing so be transformed by his eternal life. This was the invitation. But the only way that they could do that would be to pass by and reject and not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In other words, to say yes to the invitation of God would actually cost them something. Just like saying yes to the invitation of God will cost you something. Choosing one of the trees would cost you the other. This is why the language is kind of weird. It's like, which, well, which one's really in the middle? It's like, well, the tree of life's in the middle, but the other one's right there. They come together. And in case we're too hard on our first parents, in the next chapter of the story, we learn that this tree of death, of knowledge of good and evil, God tells us it's a tree of death. It doesn't look like the path to death. We know that God's word explains that to us, but how does it view and look in their kind of perceived reality of things? It doesn't look like a path of death. It actually looks like a path of life. We hear that in the next part of the story. The next chapter looks good to the eyes. It's beautiful. It is a vibrant tree in the garden. It is not kind of a piece of junk off to the side. Like the reason Adam and Eve fell wasn't just because they were like, well, there's a tree of life and man, that's beautiful and vibrant. And there's these poisonous moldy berries over here. And I wonder which one we're going to eat, right? No, it's a beautiful tree. It's pleasing to the eyes because of what it represents. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil represents human autonomy. Do you ever want that? Pretty sure that's like idol number one for Western civilization. It represents the ability for us to go out into the world on our own terms. It represents the ability for us to go and find evil and good for ourselves to define our own path to flourishing. To take and eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a decision to break out into the world and to make a name for ourselves, to create our own story, to become the masters of our own destiny, or at least as the promise that holds out to us. But the problem is to do that, you have to not eat from the tree of eternal life. And the problem is to do that is actually not just to not eat from the tree of life, but is actually to leave behind the source of life. The one whose breath is in our lungs because to do this is to disobey the word of the creator. To do this is to rebel against his vision for your life. To do that is to step onto a path that he tells you will certainly lead to your death. And this is the test. To eat from the tree of life, you need to pass by and give up on this other tree. But even though we are told by God it is the tree that leads to death, it looks like the tree of life. It looks beautiful. And to leave behind this tree of death, to step forward, to reject these things, and to continue on towards the tree of life actually feels like the path of death. Because to take and eat from the tree of life is a choice to die to yourself. To die to your dreams, your ambitions, your self-realization. To die to yourself as an autonomous kind of free being that can do and kind of move out into the world and accomplish what you want. It is actually to tie yourself to God in such a way that you now cannot taste from that other tree. To take the name of God, you need to give up your right to make a name for yourself. 
to join yourself to God. You must actually give up your right to your own story, your own glory, and your own self-definition. One of the first questions people ask, right, is why did God need to put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden in the first place? Great question. We should be asking it. If God knows everything and he knew that we would eat from it, why in the world would he put it there? This wasn't like, we'll see how it goes. He knows the end of the story. He knows what this tree costs us. And he knows what it costs him. So if God knows everything, why in the world does he put this tree in the garden? It's not a stupid question. It's actually the question we all should be asking. And the reason is because it was the only way that he could also put the tree of life in the garden. A test is not something that you give to trip people up or hinder them. That's not the point of a test. Right? A test is something you give to people so that by passing the test, passing through the test, they can become something greater. Right? This happens in like medical school, right? Some of you guys are in medical school. You're trying to figure out how do I be a doctor, how do I be a nurse practitioner. It is true that if you don't pass the tests, you flunk out of school, right? Amen? Amen. Okay. If you don't pass the test, you will flunk out of school. But it's also true that if there are not tests, you cannot exemplify competency and become a doctor. So if there's no test, you can stay in medical school the rest of your life. You cannot fail out, but you also cannot be what you were created to be and grow into that. You cannot also become a doctor. That's what the tree of life is about. It's a test that God gave to humanity, not a test as in a temptation. In the next chapter, we're going to learn how Satan takes it and turns it into a temptation, but it's not temptation. It's a test, a choice, an opportunity that allowed them the possibility of growing into something so terribly beautiful and glorious that the possibility of them eating from the tree of life and becoming this fuller kind of picture of humanity where they're actually being joined to God by taking of his eternal life, what the story is telling us is that that possibility was so unbelievably good for us that it was worth the possibility that we might eat from the wrong tree and destroy it all. And by the way, Jesus isn't just counting the cost for us. He's counting the cost for himself. Because when Jesus takes the tree of life and he's saying, okay, this is my, the fullness of my eternal life. This is like just the center of the substance of who I am. I am going to put this on the table for my image bearers to actually join themselves into and become part of in such a way that it will lead to the final and best possible end of the story for them. This is the best possible world. There it is. When Jesus does that, because he's there making those decisions, he knows that to do that will cost him his life. Because when we eat from the tree of death, he already knows that will happen. And he knows that the cost of him putting the tree of life into our story is going to be that he will get the tree of death. He knows that. He's omniscient. He knows the story before it's written. Why does he do that? Why does he create a possible world where not just we suffer and experience pain because of our failure, but actually he suffers and experiences unbelievable pain and actually 
wrath of God and kind of this kind of eternal death on the cross, why does God go to that length and risk that suffering and embrace all of that? Because the tree of life must be unbelievably valuable. At the end of that story, where humanity doesn't just stay in the garden and things are good and, you know, we get to hang out with the animals and enjoy stuff and, and just the world's good anymore. There's no more death. There's, things aren't broken anymore, but things just kind of stay this way. And we know God, we have a relationship with him, but we're not joined to him in fullness. He says, that's actually a pretty good world. It's very good. But it's not the world I'm making. The world I'm making is one where my image bearers become joined to me by partaking of my internal life in a way so that the end of the story is so much better than the beginning that it's actually worth us to get to the end of the story even if it costs me my own blood, my own flesh, my own life. This is a really deeply symbolic story. It's real, it happened. God wrote the story and he wrote the Bible. He wrote the history of the world and the Bible. So a story can be deeply symbolic and have actually historically happened. But I want you to see the end of the story. Revelation 22. It says, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and from the Lamb. This is not Eden. This is the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus has bought and purchased by his blood for us. And he says this, this river is kind of flowing down the middle of the great street of the city and on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse and the throne of God and the lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will be no more night. They will not need the light or lamp of Light for the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever and ever. That is the end of the story. And the end of the story, right in the middle, kind of spanning across all the land, both sides of the river, is the tree of life. It is this kind of edible, physical sacrament to the eternal life of God. Who he is your creator, not just knowledge of him, but his eternal life. You were made, you were created, not just to know him, but actually for someday to be able to take of him, to taste him, to ingest him, to consume him in such a way that it changes you from one degree of glory to another. Because you're a Christian, you're not wondering if you will pass the test and that will be the end of your story. We already failed the test. That's why our world sucks. <laughs> We're not in the Garden of Eden anymore. Our world is filled with sin and death. We're wearing masks. It's ridiculous. We live in a horrible, horrible world compared to the way it was supposed to be. You don't have a test to face. You've made the wrong choice. You will make the wrong choice. You'll make the wrong choice probably at least daily the entire rest of your life, okay? There'll be trees that you'll walk by and God will say, don't eat that tree, it's death. And you'll go, but it looks pretty good. And I'll be like, it's death, I'm telling you, the path, that's death. 
And you'll just go. Ah, you'll eat it. And we do it every single day, right? So, because of Jesus Christ, you're not being put in a test anymore. You failed the test. You have received this world, and the end of this world is death. And one day you will die. But because Jesus Christ loved you and loved the vision and future flourishing of you in the new heavens and the new earth, he loved that thing for you so much, he said, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put the tree of life in the story, and then I'm actually going to take the tree of death. The thing you eat, I'm going to take the final end of that. I'm going to take the death so I can actually give you the tree of life. Because I'm telling you, you want this. This is everything. It's so good, it's actually worth me coming and dying for so that, that could be the end of your story. Listen, the reason we need this, the reason this is practical, okay, I'm almost done. The reason this is practical is because your life with Jesus, he's trying to lead you to eternal life. That's where he's going. That's the path he's on. And you're a follower of Jesus. But the reality is that he is going to lead you to do things and he is going to tell you, his word is going to come to you and he's going to say, don't do that. And it is going to feel like to not do that is going to be death to you. He will say things to you about your sexuality. He will say things to you about who you can be in a relationship with. He will say things to you about how you have to sacrifice for yourself for someone who doesn't care about you. He's going to tell you things to do and he's going to say, follow me. And you're going to see him walking on a path that looks like it leads to death. And I'm telling you, the end of that path that Jesus is walking on is the tree of life, and it is worth it. No matter what you have to give up in this life, no matter what tree you have to get rid of and walk past and say, no more, I choose that. I'm telling you, it is worth anything you would ever sacrifice, any death you would die, anything you would ever give up, because that is the tree of life you were meant to taste and eat from. And to be able to taste and eat from God himself will transform you and make you into not just a better version of yourself. It will make you into the truest, most real version of you that from the very beginning of time, God has said, no, that's who you're going to be. And I know it's going to cost me my life. But I will die to turn you into that. It's worth it. Let's keep going. Let's pray. Jesus. We blew it, literally within the first two chapters of the Bible. <laughs> Just right away, God, you're like, don't do this. And we're like, okay, I'm going to do that. <laughs> God, we're such a mess. God, we're so easily distracted. We, we, there's so many different things in our life that are like these trees for us, and we just go to them, and we take them, and we eat of them, and, and, and we know it leads to death. You tell us it leads to death. We just do it over and over and over again, God, and we are on this path that leads to destruction. And so, Jesus, we just say, thank you that you broke into our story. That you took the tree of death yourself so that you could give us the tree of life. God, would we be people that as you try to lead us home and you try to lead us through things that will hurt, through suffering, through trials, through humbling, through death, the thing you are leading us to is eternal life, Jesus. Would you give us strength to follow you? Would you give us belief and faith in our hearts that where you are leading us is really, really good? Lead us home. Let us worship you today in your name.